Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Increasing the Uptake of Flu Vaccines Across the Age and Risk Spectrum, is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and is supported by an educational grant from Securus USA Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. All right. Welcome back, everyone. I am pleased to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Martin Mahoney. He is a professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Environmental Health at the University of Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. Today, Dr. Mahoney will be speaking about flu vaccines. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, Here are his disclosures. And here are our learning objectives. We're going to implement the ACIP recommendations for influenza vaccine updated for the 2022-2023 flu season. We're going to individualize immunization schedules and choices according to specific age and risk groups. And then lastly, we're going to use strategies and resources to address barriers to vaccines. All right, let's just go ahead and get started. Dr. Mahoney. Thank you, Mary. All right. So to start out, um, we'll just review a little bit of the epidemiology of seasonal influenza vaccine. And really, uh, if we look back over the last several influenza seasons, 2010, 2011 through 2019, 2020, we can see that the impact of each of those influenza seasons has been variable, but significant nonetheless. Um, anywhere from, you know, 9 million to 45 million illness episodes, 14 to 21 million outpatient medical visits, 140,000 to 810,000 uh, hospitalizations, and anywhere from 12,000 to 61,000 uh, deaths. But like any other infectious disease, right, it's the uh, extremes of age who are going to be most impacted most typically uh, children less than two years of age and adults over age 65, as well as anyone with uh, medical comorbidities, which place them at increased risk for uh, medical complications. Speaking of complications, it's important to understand that just because somebody is infected with influenza doesn't mean they're immune to other uh, conditions. In fact, we see a lot of co-infections, co-infections with other bacterial or viral pathogens. Examples of that would be uh, a bacterial sinusitis, uh, a a secondary uh, bacterial otitis media, um, again, possibly pneumonia, either viral or bacterial uh, in origin. And then the other thing that often occurs is that we see an exacerbation of an underlying medical condition, uh, whether we're talking about diabetes, COPD, asthma, et cetera. There's been a number of reports over the last several years uh, documenting an increased risk of myocardial infarction uh, within a week of influenza. And that risk is markedly increased. You can see there that figure of uh, six to 10-fold increased risk uh, within a week of uh, influenza. And that risk extends uh, as well to an increased risk of stroke, three to eight-fold risk for several weeks following a single influenza episode. The other way to kind of think about that risk is to view it from a preventive potential. And there, there was a meta-analysis done uh, a few years ago, which documented that the preventive potential of vaccinating a patient 
against seasonal influenza vaccine was comparable to getting uh, a patient to stop smoking or uh, to be adherent to an entire year of statin therapy or blood pressure control. And I think when you put that into perspective like that, um, you know, to me, it's like, why wouldn't you protect uh, patients at high at high risk of a, a, a medical uh, complication with something, with a therapy as simple as uh, a seasonal influenza vaccine? This next graphic kind of busy, and what it's representing is uh, the number of influenza-like illness episodes. So this is a barometer for the activity of influenza in a particular season. Um, and you can see here uh, a number of seasons, uh, in fact, the last nine or 10 influenza seasons. And that red line is the 21-22 influenza season. Um, you can see that influenza season typically peaks sometime between December uh, and February. That's the shaded area. Um, most of the time, though, that peak is going to occur in January or, or February or even later. Um, and that works out to about uh, two-thirds of the time, 65% of the time. The other interesting thing to note uh, from the uh this particular graphic is the fact that, you know, that 21-22 season, that uh, last influenza season, was was very different in terms of the the line was low, right? Uh, the threshold for uh, background influenza-like illnesses that dotted line about 2.6 percent of visits for influenza-like illnesses, and you can see aside from a peak in late December, uh, early January. Um, that line kind of fell below the threshold. And that really reflected what? A number of uh, policies, right? Masking, uh, social distancing, uh, and, and similar kinds of uh, uh, structural changes, uh, if, if you will, uh, reflecting, you know, what, what we did to manage the COVID pandemic. All right. This cartoon here represents uh, a influenza virion and the important uh, uh, antigens on the outside would include hemagglutinin. They look like the blue lollipops and neuraminidase, abbreviated there as NA, uh, as the white lollipops. Um, there are actually three uh, families of influenza viruses that uh, uh, infect humans, A, B, and C. We're all familiar, I think, with influenza A and influenza B. These are typical components of the, uh, depending on what's circulating, the, the seasonal influenza vaccine. There is a, a family of influenza C viruses. We don't hear anything about them because we don't really track them uh, because influenza C is thought really to result in uh, subclinical cases uh, of infection. So there's no disease burden. There's no significant illness. Uh, or hospital burden, so we, we we tend to skip over influenza C. And then when we're talking about influenza A subtypes, remember that's based on the combination of the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase glycoproteins. There's about 18 different identified hemagglutinin um, glycoproteins, 11 uh, neuraminidase uh, uh, glycoproteins, and and they combine. Right, you get a, a uh, an, an N uh, H designation and an N designation, and 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 that kind of 
that classifying the, the circulating strains, and those change, as we know, from year to year. All right, we're going to go ahead and do a case study. We have Sam. He's a 68-year-old Asian male. Sam visits your primary care practice in November for an annual checkup. He's five foot seven, 260 pounds, which gives him a BMI of 40. He does have type 2 diabetes. He had a knee replacement one month ago. He's unvaccinated against influenza. He says that he's taken the vaccine in the past, but he worries about side effects. He mentions that his wife has never believed in vaccines, even though she has asthma. And despite your counseling that both he and his wife are at high risk for influenza complication, Sam declines the vaccine. He also declines the COVID-19 vaccination. So, Dr. Mahoney, back to you. All right. Uh, typical patient, by the way. I, I, you know, I, I see patients like Sam all, all the time, as I'm sure you do. Um, but I think it's important to recognize uh, patients like Sam carry with them a number of uh, important risk factors for complications uh, of an influenza illness episode. On the left, we see demographic factors, uh, patients over age 65, younger children, right, especially under two and especially under six months who are not eligible for influenza uh, vaccination, pregnant women, including uh, two weeks postpartum, um, you know, social uh, inequities, health disparities, again, uh, are reflected in influenza illness burden. So you see all of these uh, uh, different uh, popu patient populations uh, demonstrating increased risk. We'll, we'll see that uh, on a, on a uh, slide upcoming as well, as well as residents of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Over on the right are a whole host of chronic medical conditions, which increase risk of influenza complications. Um, and just like we saw with COVID-19, morbid obesity is an important uh, risk factor. Um, and the, the, the call-outs here, the, the boxed ones, are the ones that really would apply to Sam or his wife, the age and those medical comorbidities, including uh, morbid obesity. So the action item is remember to recommend influenza vaccine to all patients over six months of age. Back to you, Dr. Molly. All right. So this next slide looks at uh, rates of influenza vaccination. So completion of seasonal influenza vaccine uh, by selected high-risk uh, medical uh, comorbidities. And, and this is uh, adults 18 to 64 years of age. Um, while the data are several years old, I can assure you that they have not changed uh, for a more recent uh, time period. Um, really, you know, we just reviewed some of the medical comorbidities that uh, increase the risk of influenza complications. And, you know, despite I, those, those risk factors, uh, patients, regardless of whether they have asthma, COPD, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, um, they all hover at 50% or less. Um, and if you look at a whole variety of medical comorbidities, right, these are the biggest ones, but if you include uh, a broader mix of medical comorbidities, overall uh, vaccination rates, 37%. So uh, again, you know, it, even in these high-risk groups, not much better than the background uh, influenza coverage rate. We mentioned uh, a couple of slides ago, uh, social um, and, and uh, uh, social disparities, health inequities, and that carries across to influenza vaccine completion rates. 
Um, two recent influenza seasons, 2019-2020 on the left, 2020-2021 influenza season on the right. The blue bars are uh, completion uh, rates for uh, black, non-Hispanic, orange, Hispanic populations. The gray American Indian and Alaska Native populations, Asians are in green and non-Hispanic whites are in yellow. And you can see that the highest rates of influenza uh, completion tend to be in Asian and uh, non-Hispanic white populations with the lowest rates uh, generally in Hispanic and uh, non-Hispanic black uh, populations. So unfortunately, longstanding disparities, which, uh, you know, are, did not improve as a result of the uh, uh, COVID uh, pandemic. We can examine health disparities again through the lens of uh, age-adjusted flu-related hospitalization rates. So uh, over on the left, you see the highest rates of uh, hospitalization rates related to influenza illness episodes occurring among non-Hispanic Blacks, the lowest rates in uh, non-Hispanic whites and Asian slash Pacific Islander population. And, you know, I, I think this reflects a number of uh, factors, uh, but primarily this is driven by what? Completion of seasonal influenza uh, vaccines, as well as, you know, other uh, social and medical uh, uh, comorbidities. All right, let's go back to our case. Sam returns to the office after attending a New Year's Eve party, and he's feeling sick two days later. His symptoms include fever, 101.8, chills, body aches, an intense headache, extreme fatigue, and a cough. He missed work yesterday. He's unable to perform any household chores. His wife was with him at the party, but she has no symptoms. Influenza is highly prevalent in the community. But the rate of COVID-19 is low where he is at. All right, back to you, Dr. Maloney. All right. And the, the rationale for that is, um, you know, you, you presume that uh, that patient has influenza. So, you know, you're going to give them uh, an antiviral medication and also uh, strongly encourage uh, uh, completion of seasonal influenza vaccine. Um, because again, there are four different strains uh, uh, um, in, in the seasonal influenza vaccine, and that would protect against a second illness episode from uh, one of the three other strains. Uh, that uh, you, you know that that that's why that recommendation is to treat and vaccinate. So speaking of uh, influenza antiviral medications, uh, I, I think everyone is familiar with uh, uh, Olsatamavir and Zanamavir. Those products have been around for several years. More recently, uh, there has been an expansion to some other uh, uh, antiviral medications to treat uh, influenza uh, episodes, including uh, Paramavir. Uh, administered uh, IV and uh, baloxavir, which is uh, an oral medication. And again, just as a reminder, it has been many, many years uh, since the CDC has recommended the use of uh, amantadine or romantadine as a influenza antiviral medication. The reason behind that uh, non-recommendation are very high rates of resistance. So it, it is not going to help your patient uh, to prescribe amantadine or romantadine. Please use one of the uh, 
uh, for influenza antiviral medications you see at the top of this screen. So this slide uh, describes the current composition of the seasonal influenza vaccine for 2022-2023. Um, each year, the uh, 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 World Health Organization um, gets together uh, in February uh, to make some recommendations uh, about what is circulating uh, based on what is circulating in the Southern Hemisphere for public health authorities in the Northern Hemisphere to make some decisions about what that composition uh, will be. The change from 21-22 was to change the H1N1 component as well as one of the uh, uh, influenza B components um, remember when we when we saw that cartoon uh, of of uh, the the influenza virions, the uh, A types are based on an, an H and an N designation. Most flu seasons, there's an, an H1N1 component and an H3N2 component. Um, there is some slight variation if you read across here. The the H1N1 component is slightly different in the egg based. Uh, in live attenuated formulations compared to the cell culture and recombinant uh, versions. The other change for this current influenza season was to change one of the uh, B components. And the other in, uh, important point to share with you is since 2021, 2022, everything, uh, all the seasonal influenza vaccines have been quadrivalent, meaning contain four antigens two uh, against influenza A and two against influenza B. And the reason for that was by adding another uh, B, right, before that they were 2A and 1B, um, there's only two lineages for the B. Uh, and although you would think it would be easy to predict the circulating strain, if you look back over time, um, they were wrong about 50% of the time. So to eliminate that error and to reduce uh, uh, disease burden, provide broadened coverage, everything went quadrivalent in 21, uh, 22. Um, and there's that basically the Yamagata lineage and the Victoria limit, uh, lineage, and that covers all the B strains. All right, a busy slide here, but covers some important information, including what uh, products are indicated for what age groups. If we just start out in the top row and look at inactivated influenza uh, vaccines, again, everything is quadrivalent. Um, when, you, when we speak about standard dose unadjuvanted or cell culture based, uh, you can see a number of products listed there by brand. Um, those two classes of seasonal influenza vaccines have the broadest indication ranging from six months of age to 65 plus. If we continue down, uh, looking at the next row, uh, adjuvanted uh, inactivated influenza vaccines are indicated for patients ages 65 plus. Uh, high dose product, uh, the same age indication, 65 plus. Recombinant influenza vaccines are indicated for, for use in patients 18, of age, 18 years of age uh, and above. And the live attenuated influenza vaccine, again, all of these products are quadrivalent, is indicated uh, for use in patients ages 2 through age uh, 49. Um, and then the uh, flu block and the cell culture, uh, I'm sorry, the recombinant and cell culture-based uh, uh, products um, are, are identified as 
not having any uh, egg component, no uh, egg proteins, no uh, albumin. So that's important to uh, uh, as, as an option for patients who may be egg allergic. So the action item is be familiar with the age indications for the available uh, influenza vaccine products. Very. So back to you, Dr. Mahoney. All right. Thank you. All right. Some other important points to keep in mind if your patient is less than nine years old, so between the ages of six months through eight years, um, you need to ask the question uh, whether that particular patient has received two or more doses of an, a seasonal influenza vaccine, either the trivalent for the 19, uh, 2019-2020 product or earlier, a season or earlier, or the quadrivalent influenza um, prior to uh, uh, July 1st of 2022. It doesn't, uh, the, the two doses don't have to have been received during the same or consecutive seasons. It just needs to be a total of two uh, or more doses Previously, if the answer is yes, you go ahead and administer a single dose of the 22-23 seasonal influenza vaccine, and that uh, patient is considered uh, vaccinated. If the answer is no or you don't know, that patient needs two doses of the 22-23 influenza uh, vaccine administered uh, four or more weeks apart. Um, The reason for that is is simply if you think of... uh, uh, years of potential exposure to the components of the influenza vaccine. So uh, d- developing kind of a, a, a broad exposure, if you will, to uh, the antigens in the vaccine. So that, that's uh, a, just a, a question you need to ask if your uh, patient population involves uh, younger children. So the action item is remember that some children under nine years of age will require two doses of influenza vaccines this season. All right, very important new uh, recommendation from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices uh, as it relates to the current uh, seasonal influenza vaccine, and that is uh, what to do, uh, what to recommend in patients 65 years of age and above. Um, The ACIP came out in their updated MMWR uh, recommendation for the Uh, 22-23 influenza season, stating that patients ages 65 and over should preferentially receive one of the following high-dose or adjuvanted influenza vaccines. So the high-dose inactivated influenza vaccine, high-dose because it contains an increased uh, um, level of antigen, right? Standard dose vaccine is 15 micrograms of antigen per type. Um, or per strain, high dose contains 60 milligrams, uh, as does the, the recombinant influenza vaccine is also a higher dose vaccine. Instead of 15 millig- uh, micrograms, excuse me, uh, per uh, strain, it is uh, 45, so three times as much antigen. And then the adjuvanted inactivated influenza vaccine, uh, the adjuvant is included as a strategy to kind of stimulate an immune response. Uh, so uh, as we age, our immune systems weaken. The two ways, three ways really to overcome uh, that weakening immune system are multiple doses, higher antigen, or use of an adjuvant. And here we see the strategy higher dose uh, along with adjuvanted products to overcome that uh, uh, 
sleepy or a weakened immune system as we age. The CDC uh, and ACIP take a pragmatic approach, however, and recognize that if none of these products are available when you're making your recommendation uh, for a patient to receive seasonal influenza vaccine, that as an alternative, any other age-appropriate influenza uh, vaccine uh, can be used. So the action item, if available, give patients over age 65 years of age either a higher dose or adjuvanted seasonal influenza vaccine. So let's go back to Dr. Mahoney. All right. So the next slide talks about influenza vaccine contraindications and precautions. And and whether we're talking about uh, the egg-based quadrivalent uh, formulation, cell culture, or recombinant uh, seasonal influenza vaccine, the real uh, contraindication is a history of a a severe allergic reaction to any of the, any component of the vaccine or any other uh, influenza vaccine. And by severe allergic reaction here, we're talking about anaphylaxis. Um, the other precautions really are, you know, a history of Guillain-Barre syndrome within uh, six weeks of uh, uh, influenza vaccine, uh, moderate or severe illness with or without a fever. Uh, that involves more of a uh, uh, conversation with the patients using good clinical judgment, balancing uh, risks and benefits to the patient. If we continue on to uh, the uh, other uh, vaccine type, live attenuated influenza vaccine, here the list of contraindications is uh, a bit broader. It's going to, again, include a prior history of anaphylaxis to any component of this uh, particular product or any other influenza vaccine. It's a live vaccine contraindicated for use in pregnancy, as well as in immunocompromised patients. Um, use good clinical judgment if you're going to administer uh, this patient, uh, uh, this product to a patient who lives in a household with someone who is severely immunocompromised. Um, concomitant use of aspirin or salicylates in children and adolescents is another contraindication, as is a history of asthma or wheezing in children two to four years of age. Um, and cochlear implants, CSF, uh, cerebral uh, spinal fluid leaks um, would be another contraindication. And depending on whether the patient has received an influenza antiviral medication, it's important to uh, be aware of the washout period. So I will call your attention back to agents like uh, baloxivir with a half-life of 79 uh, hours uh, or uh, uh, paramavir, um, which has a half-life of about 20 hours. So you need to be very careful uh, to allow sufficient time to elapse if uh, uh, a patient has received one of those uh, particular antiviral products and you're thinking about administering the live attenuated influenza vaccine. What about the timing of uh flu vaccination, it, it seems to me that I know the summer is ending when, when I go by the local drugstores at the end of August and see the signs, flu vaccine available now. Um, uh, and, you know, there's there's not the, I know some patients tend to rush out and get vaccination. Uh, their seasonal influenza vaccine in, in, in August or September. Um, and, and there's a lot of vaccination that occurs in October. Um, but as reflected in this slide, it's, you know, 
if you look at the last influenza season, cumulative dose distribution, 23% got distributed in August. That percentage increased to 58%. August and September, 86%. August, September, and October. But by November, Thanksgiving, about 95% of the influenza vaccine that was administered last year was uh, 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 provided, meaning that during December, January, February, and March of last year, we didn't do a whole lot of uh, vaccinating. And, you know, there are continued opportunities with patients who come into the office in late November, throughout December, January, and February. Uh, remember, seasonal influenza most typically peaks in January, February, or March. Uh, so plenty of opportunities to continue to uh, promote seasonal influenza vaccination beyond Thanksgiving. Um, we talked earlier about pregnant women, including in the third trimester. Uh, those uh, individuals should receive influenza vaccine as soon as it is available. The reason for that is it reduces uh, risk of complications to them, so uh, maternal-related comorbidities, as well as it helps to form a protective cocoon uh, around the infant. So there would be some transmission of maternal antibodies uh, into the infant. Um, but if the mom is protected, the mom is going to be spending a lot of time with the infant. Um, she would help to kind of uh, per, uh, ha create that uh, protective cocoon until the infant can be vaccinated uh, upon reaching uh, six years of age. Six months of age, excuse me. So the takeaway there, continue to administer influenza vaccine throughout the influenza season. So Dr. Mahoney, back to you. All right. So the AARP uh, recently surveyed a, a population of uh, folks here in the U.S., age 45 and above, looking at attitudes and beliefs about vaccines, including influenza vaccine. And you can see here a summary of uh, some of the more common responses to the question, why do you rarely or never get a flu shot? Um, and aside from the fact that people responded that they just didn't want one, um, the, the uh, other leading uh, responses included the fact that they were concerned about possible side effects and they don't believe in them or didn't think they're safe. And um, really, you know, influenza vaccines have been around for decades. Uh, the the Efficacy and safety is, is, uh, has been demonstrated, uh, you know, continuously and, and probably characterized in a way that, uh, is, is far in excess of any other, uh, vaccine product. All right. Back to our case study. So given the high prevalence of influenza in the community and SAM's negative swab test for COVID-19, you prescribe an influenza antiviral. Within three days, his symptoms subside and he's able to return to work. You recommend that he receive a higher dose or adjuvanted vaccine to avoid further infection during the remainder of the flu season, and he refuses, saying he's worried about the side effects. So, Dr. Mahoney, back to you. Yeah, so really, Sam is demonstrating what we refer to as vaccine hesitancy. So, I, you know, I, I think, again, COVID-19, um, you know, if you try to find some silver linings, it, it really... Uh, opened up the conversation about uh, vaccine hesitancy. Um, it is complex and, and context-specific. Um, and, you know, every patient kind of comes at it from a 
slightly different perspective. Um, the question is, you know, what do you do about it? Uh, you know, the, the Centers for Disease Control has developed this SHARE model, S-H-A-R-E, SHARE the reasons when a flu vaccine is right for your patient, so kind of individualizing it, highlighting positive experiences with flu vaccines, addressing patient questions and concerns, reminding patients that flu vaccines uh, do have demonstrated efficacy in terms of protecting them and loved ones. Uh, from uh, illness and complications and explaining the potential cost of getting a flu. Um, you know, the CDC has this share method. Some other academic health centers have developed other models. But the bottom line, the most important factor is your clear, concise recommendation for patients to get the flu vaccine. Patients trust you. You are their clinicians. And as a result, patients are more likely to get the vaccine if you, their clinician, recommends it to them. We also get a, often get a lot of questions about where can I go uh, for a valid and unbiased evidence-based uh, uh, information about influenza. Um, two websites that I will recommend, the CDC branches off to uh, a, 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 uh, an area addressing seasonal influenza uh, vaccines. The second resource I would recommend for you as uh, uh, clinicians is immunize.org, uh, standing orders, a bunch of uh, questions and answers that are all vetted by vaccine experts. All right, back to our case. Sam agrees to be immunized with an adjunctivated flu vaccine. He experiences an injection site pain for a few days, but he otherwise has no adverse reactions. He didn't have any flu-like symptoms for the rest of the flu season. When his wife presented for care, you successfully employed the SHARE method to persuade her to be immunized as well. So, Dr. Mahoney, will you review our action plan? I sure will. Um, recommend influenza vaccine to all patients six months of age and older. Be familiar with the age indications uh, for the uh, specific uh, influenza uh, vaccine products. Remember that some children under age nine will require two doses of influenza uh, vaccine this season. If available, patients over age 65 should be offered a high dose for uh, adjuvantive vaccine and continue to administer influenza vaccine throughout the influenza season. All right, so let's go ahead and do some questions. The first one is from Mitzi. How long do you have to wait to get a flu shot after an injectable steroid? Um, interesting question. I, I, I think it would depend on the dose, right? Um, we're, we're, we're really concerned about uh, I impact of a uh, long-term steroid use uh, w with uh, interfering with response to an influenza vaccine. So I would think that an acute injection, whether it was, you know, into a joint uh, or perhaps for some other reason, um, would would I would go ahead and uh, administer the vaccine uh, when when you're making the recommendation? Uh, in my opinion, you would not have to wait because that would be in a an acute uh, uh, treatment uh, episode, not uh, chronic long term use of steroids. All right. The next one is from Fran. I know high dose is only for those over sixty five. Why aren't they used for immunocompromised patients as well? I think that's a great question. Um, 
you know, and, and, you know, the label is 65 plus based on the clinical trial data. Those were the populations uh, studied. Um, I, I don't know whether there are plans to study younger, so-called mid, mid, middle-aged uh, adult populations. But, uh, you know, taking, taking that thought a little bit further, you would have the option to use uh, the recombinant influenza vaccine uh, in a younger adult immunocompromised population, right? That's also a higher dose product. It's got three times the uh, antigens in there and it's labeled for use in adult ages uh, 18 and above. So you, you do have options to, you know, utilize what you, your new knowledge or existing knowledge, as it were, uh, about the, the antigen content in vaccines to, to again, better try to meet the medical uh, needs of, of your particular patients. Okay, the next question is from Ludi. The flu and COVID vaccine should be separated by four weeks. Is that correct? Um, no, Ludi, that recommendation has changed. Remember, with the availability of COVID vaccines, initially we were very uh, cautious and, and recommended that, uh, you know, that, that this four-week interval be observed uh, once we developed additional experience and understood, you know, yes, COVID-19 is is reactogenic in terms of, you know, side effects. Um, uh, the, the current recommendation from the CDC is to go ahead and administer those vaccines to that patient, uh, which uh, are recommended at that visit. So if that patient is due for COVID-19 booster and a seasonal influenza vaccine, the recommendation would be to go ahead and give it at the same time. Um, but I would uh, add that, you know, administer them in uh, different anatomic locations, left deltoid, right deltoid, you're going to record what goes where. So if there is an adverse reaction, a side effect that uh, needs to be explored or even reported, uh, you can uh, attribute that side effect to uh, one of those uh, particular vaccines. Okay, the next question is from Olga. Can you please clarify why children have to have two doses of the flu vaccine? Yeah, so Olga, again, just to kind of review, um, think of it as, you know, acquiring or developing a robust immune response. The more times you see uh, that antigen, the stronger and broader that uh, antibody response is, is going to be. Um, so that's really the rationale. If, if a child under nine, so between age six months through eight years of age, you, you want to query an immunization uh, information system, a vaccine registry, uh, electronic uh, health records, or whatever the source is to identify at least two prior doses of seasonal influenza vaccine. If, if, they, if you can identify two prior doses, that patient needs just a single dose for the current influenza season. If not, they need two doses. Uh, and those doses would be administered four weeks, uh, four or more weeks apart. Okay, this next one is from Gabrielle. How long do you have to wait to get a flu shot after you've been diagnosed with the flu? Yeah, so that's a, a very relevant question. Um, I would say wait until the acute illness episode has passed. Uh, for most uh, individuals, that's what, three days, five days, maybe a week. 
um, and then they would be eligible. And I, I hope the reason for that question, Gabriel, was that you're thinking, hey, the flu vaccine is quadrivalent um, in, in, and in several of the past influenza seasons, the predominant strain has actually flipped late in the season. So again, the, the rationale would be, although someone had an influenza episode, um, with the quadrivalent product, you have the ability to protect against two A strains and two B strains. Okay, and this question is from Gay. Now, would your recommendation on how long to wait to administer the vaccine change is if they've actually been treated with a medication for influenza? Yes, absolutely, right? Because uh, antiviral medications are going to interfere. Uh, I'm sorry, repeat the question, Mary. Was that the, the, the a live vaccine or a... She didn't clarify about which vaccine, okay. but just if somebody's been treated for influenza, how long would you wait to administer a vaccine? So the, the so remember the case uh, where where the patient came in with influenza-like uh, uh, symptoms and the decision, the recommendation for optimal management is to administer a influenza antiviral and to give, in the case of this 65-year-old uh, patient, uh, either a higher dose or an adjuvanted influenza vaccine. So you're managing the current episode, but providing the patient uh, with uh, the ability to be protected throughout the influenza season. The only caveat where uh, antivirals, uh, uh, influenza antivirals would come into play is with use of the live attenuated influenza vaccine, where if you have had a uh, it, uh, it administered either uh, paramivir or meloxivir. Those half-lives are, are pretty substantial, especially in the case of meloxivir, 79 hours. So you would have to go out to, what, four or five half-lives uh, uh, in terms of delaying administration for the live uh, attenuated influenza vaccine. All right. And then we have a couple questions. Um, uh, same sort of a question. Um, we have one from Gabriel and one from Barbara. When do you think we will have a combination flu COVID-19 vaccine? Is that in our future? Yes, it is. That's a great question. Very soon. I, you know, I think people with, with the um, mRNA uh, platform, um, I, I think the, the ability to combine various antigens into the same vaccine are, are not uh, far off in the future. So great question. All right. And then uh, this one is from Kim. Does immunity wane by February or March if they've gotten their vaccine in the fall, especially in the elderly? Oh, I love that question. Yes. The CDC doesn't like to talk about it, but if you read their uh, MMWR uh, statement each uh, influenza season, they will acknowledge that immunity decreases. A typical influenza vaccine for a typical patient, in quotes, um, is thought to protect for somewhere between five and six months. Um, from a quantitative standpoint, how much does immunity decline? It declines somewhere between seven and 10% a month, which means if you were one of those folks who, when uh, CVS or Walgreens put up their sign in August, went out and got vaccinated, well, September, October, November, December, January, 
you know, come January, February, you might be out of protection in terms of, uh, you know, falling uh, uh, antibody levels. And, and that, again, really speaks to it is a, you know, it's a, it's a, a marathon, not a sprint in terms of getting patients vaccinated. <laughs> Excuse me. And probably when you think about waning immunity and the need for protection to last through the end of March and sometimes longer, I think it makes a lot of sense to, to really delay seasonal influenza vaccine um, until late October, early November. Uh, there isn't a lot of influenza circulating currently. There will be after people start to socialize uh, for um, Thanksgiving and, and other upcoming holidays. Um, but, you know, the, the downside of delaying is will the patient come back in? So it's always kind of balancing risks and benefits and, you know, the, the likelihood of that patient uh, um, coming back to get a vaccine at a later date versus the ability to provide them with protection. All right. And this will be our, our last question. Is there any point in getting a flu shot in August and a second one in February? Yeah. So the current recommendation is for a single dose of vaccine. Uh, that's uh, really based on a number of pragmatic considerations. Uh, it, it's hard enough to get enough people protected uh, with a single seasonal influenza vaccine. And number two, it takes uh, a lot of effort to uh, produce a batch of seasonal influenza vaccine. Uh, you know, the, the manufacturers are, I, I don't know what their current capacity is. I would say in the U.S. it's probably uh, approaching 300 million doses. Uh, they have an obligation to produce influenza vaccine outside the U.S., so right, it's globally. Um, and this is something that's occurring in the fall and winter for the Northern Hemisphere and uh you know, the alternative six months or seven months in the Southern Hemisphere, I, I don't, I, I would wonder whether there's the capacity to produce that much vaccine. And then again, from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, are people going to be willing to get two doses of a vaccine? It's hard enough to get one. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Partners for Advancing Political Education. Peace and is supported by an educational grant from Securus USA Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.